This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really a joy to have you uh, with us. Thanks for being here this morning. You may have detected a little bit in the singing this morning. It would be hard to miss if you're looking at the lyrics. A bit of a tone. Some of the songs were kind of in a minor key, not literally, but metaphorically, uh, sort of... um, speaking about the sufferings of life and uh, trusting the Lord. We as a church aren't going through any profound suffering. Various individuals, numbers of individuals in our church are always going, someone's always going through something, right? But as a church, we aren't going through a corporate sort of season of, uh, you know, pronounced difficulty. But we are in a study in the book of the Bible that talks about uh, when God's people go through pronounced difficulty. So we are seeking to sing and to respond with the sort of lament that we find in the Bible, uh, which hits us, some of us today very real. And some of us, you'll just have to remember these songs in this text because your, your day is coming. Uh, everybody, you have all selected a number and your number will be called uh, soon enough. And so we're talking about the theme, When Life Doesn't Make Sense, a study of the book of Habakkuk. And this is our study that we're doing through Easter. And um, so this is a, a, a book where Habakkuk is talking about, uh, it's a book about a t- time when Judah was in great spiritual and moral decline. So at this point in the history of Israel, there's a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, uh, called Judah. Habakkuk is writing about this time, and Habakkuk is a prophet, and things are not going well in Judah, and so he has been crying out to God to intervene. And he's really been expressing his lament, which sets the tone for the whole book. We read it last week in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He asks two questions of God. It starts out just blazing. God, where? But basically, here are my two questions for you. How long will I cry for help and you won't answer? So he's been saying, God, this does not make sense. Your people are violent. They're harming one another. They had been through a season of renewal, but that season is over, and now they're opposing one another. It's terrible. And he's saying, God, why aren't you doing something? Or or how long, rather, how long will I have to keep asking you? Do you even hear me? And then in verse 3, he says, why do you make me see iniquity, which is sin? And why do you idly look at wrong? So all this is going wrong. Your people are, uh, there's injustice. Uh, people are being oppressed by those in power. Um, it's a terrible time. So how long is this going to go on? And why are you just looking at this rather than acting and doing something about it? And so God responds. Often when we ask questions like that, and we all do, we all at some point in life say, Lord, how long do I have to keep praying about this? Life doesn't make sense. And why aren't you doing something? We all hit that point. And uh, we made the point last week that the Bible affirms those kind of questions to the Lord. There's a difference in asking questions of the Lord and charging his character with wrongdoing. Those are two different things. But the idea of asking, Lord, why is this going on, uh, that, that is certainly appropriate. And God responds to him. And so normally when we ask those kind of questions, we don't get an immediate response, but Habakkuk is a prophet and God wants this to be a book of the Bible. So he responds to him and gives him an answer. And God says, Habakkuk, I am working. I am working. I'm working in ways that you can't see. What I'm doing is I'm raising up a people. 
not the people of Judah. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, who are the Babylonians. They are bad, bad guys and, uh, and gals, I guess. Uh, and so they, he, he says, I'm working with this evil people, and I'm raising up this evil people. And if you knew what I was doing, you wouldn't even understand it. So what's happening is he's raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, because they are going to come in and they're going to sack Jerusalem. They're going to tear down the temple. They're going to tear down the walls. They're going to uh, take God's people, many of them, into captivity, into exile. So God is bringing a judgment to his people, but it's ultimately for their good so that they will ultimately repent and come back to him. So the book of Habakkuk is a prophecy about a coming judgment. Well, this is an absolute shocker to Habakkuk because he's saying, God, why is there so much violence? And God's saying, I'm going to raise up an evil people to bring more violence. How can this be? How can God use the Chaldeans as an, as an instrument to accomplish his purposes? That's the big question of the book that we're still looking at today. How can he do that? How could God use the Chaldeans of all people? A people that he describes in verse 11, we saw last week, that they are guilty men whose own might is their God. They are, they're given to the idolatry of nationalism, celebrating their own power over other nations. They are their own God, and God is going to use them. It's stunning, stunning for Habakkuk and for anyone who would be reading this at the time. So today, we're going to look at verses 12, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. We'll finish the chapter and go into chapter 2, verse 1. So if you open up to Habakkuk, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. You can turn to page 458. And if you have questions about the text that we're talking about, these are like the big moral philosophical questions uh, of, uh, that, that, that uh, philosophers and theologians have been kicking around forever. So it's certainly possible someone has a question here, and while we don't promise a satisfactory answer, we'll give it a shot. So if you have a question, you text it in. We do a podcast during the week which talks about stuff in the life of the church and also talks about uh, what we talked about on Sunday. So we last week we talked about suffering and God and all that kind of stuff, and we will do that again this week if you send in questions. Also, we have a book on that we recommend out out uh, in the resource center there across in the coffee area uh, called Suffering, um, the Gospel, the Power of the Gospel When Life Doesn't Make Sense. It's a fantastic book, so we're recommending that as a resource as well. So with all that intro, let's look at today's text, God's Word to us from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower 
and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So in this section of Scripture, what Habakkuk is doing is he is now responding to God. So he raises a complaint. God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, and uh, I'm going to use them. And now he is responding. So life went from perplexing to uh, infinitely perplexing. It went from confusing to very confusing. And this is how he responds to God. And I think it's instructive. We're going to look at all those verses, but we're going to camp in verse 12. Because what we learn right here, it's really a model for responding when life is chaos. Today I want to talk about bringing clarity in the middle of the chaos of our lives. But in the uncertainty of life, what what Habakkuk does here is a model for us ultimately to respond. This is what he does. When life doesn't make sense, he remembers what he knows to be certain about God. That's what we are to do. When life doesn't make sense, we need to start with remembering what we know to be true about God, what we know to be certain about God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a a well-known pastor from the previous century, quick drink there, uh, he talked about about Habakkuk and what Habakkuk talks about here and what we're to do in the midst of suffering and perplexing circumstances. And he says, you need to just stop. You need to stop and think. Because he says what typically happens is when life gets difficult, uh, especially verbal processors want to just talk about it and get angry about it and draw other people into the, the, uh, the perplexing circumstances that we are a part of. And he points out that in James, the Bible says that we are to be quick to hear and quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And we often reverse that. When life is perplexing, we're quick to become angry, we're quick to talk, we're quick to post on social media, we're quick to go to everybody else who can fix our problem, and we're slow to hear God. We're slow to listen to the Lord. And what Habakkuk does is he in essence listens to the Lord because he reminds himself what is true. He, he, he reminds himself what he knows to be certain about God. And so what we what we should do in times of perplexing uh, circumstances, we should stop and we should think, we should take our eyes off of the circumstance and we should retrace our pathways back to when life was more certain, back to when God and a view of God was more certain to us and clearer. Have you ever got, gotten lost on a hike or, you know, maybe you're out, and this could work in a drive as well, uh, with GPS illustration, doesn't hold up that well. But if you've ever gotten lost on a hike, you know, and you get lost in the woods or something like that, the best thing to do is to stop and to retrace your steps and go back to the place where you knew you were. When you get lost in the woods, you, you become disoriented. And it's dangerous when you're disoriented to just keep moving. You don't find your orientation by just keep moving. You find your orientation by returning to the point when you were oriented. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does in this passage. He sort of retraces his steps back to where he back to what he knows for sure. Back to what he knows for certain. In the midst of uncertain circumstances, uncertain outcomes and uncertain future, we need to stop and say what do we know for certain? What do we know about God 
for certain. We need to stop and review the character of God. What we tend to do when life is confusing, chaotic, troublesome, burdensome, unknown, we, t- we tend to start inventorying our resources. We tend to start inventorying who can help and where can I get wisdom and what are my plans and what are my abilities and how can I get myself out of this and how can I mull it over, over and over and over again in my mind until I come up with a solution. And so we inventory our resources, our abilities, our options when we should be inventorying the character of God. That's what orients us to navigate chaos as a believer is the character of God, and this is what Habakkuk does. Look at the transition. God's last words when he tells him the Chaldeans are coming. In verse 11, God's last words are, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. They are guilty men whose own might is their God. The Chaldeans trust in themselves. Then how does Habakkuk respond? Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? This is a rhetorical question. He's saying, God, you are everlasting. And so what he does is he he calls God everlasting. He calls God Lord. He calls God my Holy One. Uh, He says, you have ordained them for judgment. He says in verse 12 as well, O rock, you have established them for reproof. What's going on here? Habakkuk's not just tossing out various theological words. Hey, I'm in trouble, so let's get religious, start using some theological language, sound all Christian, well, he wasn't a Christian, but uh, sound all Christian-like. You know, that, that's, that's not what is happening here. What he's doing is he's backing up and he's orienting himself by remembering the character of God in light of the foreboding circumstances. He's had God tell him that evil people are going to attack you, and he's saying, okay, what do I know to be true about God? And this applies in all of life's sufferings. Whatever kind of suffering we're experiencing, uh, we want to see it all through the lens of the character of God and see it all through the lens of the gospel, what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. So what I'm talking about here for Habakkuk is like a national God's people were national this time. It was, you know, the people of Israel, a national problem. So this could work for societal. How do we view societal problems? This could work for how do we view church problems? This could be how do we view family problems, work problems, relational problems, financial problems, health problems. Pick, Pick the perplexing circumstance when life doesn't make sense. And this is ultimately what what God prescribes is that we stop and begin to think about the character of God. What what does he say? God's told him all this stuff that's going to happen, and the first thing he says, you are everlasting. That's the first thing he reminds himself of. That means eternal, eternal. The Chaldean God is not everlasting. Do you see the contrast? Guilty men whose might is their own God. The Chaldeans are their own God. God, you're eternal. That's his response. The Chaldeans are very Johnny-come-lately. They are new on the scene. The Assyrians have been the power, the world power. The Assyrians are lowering in power. The, the Babylonians are rising in power, arguably because God is allowing them to do so. So the Chaldeans are rising in power, but they're not everlasting. They're a recent superpower, but God is without beginning. Now, this sounds like, why, why is he going, why go theological? Because this, because we must, we must see the greatness of our God. 
when, when I am distraught in perplexing circumstances, it's because my vision of God is small. My circumstances look huge, and God looks very small. And so what Habakkuk does, he said, let's get a picture of a big God. That's what we need right now. We need a big God. When we gather on Sunday, you need to sing songs and hear scriptures and hear sermons and read passages of scripture that tell you God is bigger than you even know. We need that reminder all the time. We don't need self-help. We don't need uh, coming together and elevating how great we are and what we can do and what we accomplish. We need to be on our face saying God is greater than anyone in the room knows. And let's recount that and rehearse that so that we walk out of here with a fresh vision for our lives. And so this is what he says. You are everlasting. You have no beginning and no end. Here's the the reality. Every challenging circumstance in your life is temporary. Every circumstance is temporary. Every circumstance will have an end. God has no end. Every circumstance that's difficult showed up at some time, but God was before that. God was before human history. God will endure beyond the human history of this current planet. I mean, we're eternal beings. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to live forever. We have a beginning. Uh, we're not infinite. We have a beginning, but we will live forever. But God was there before the beginning. Every national power that raises its head is only temporary. World history tells us this, but the nature of God tells us this, that he is the only one who reigns, has always reigned, will always reign. There is comfort in comparing the eternal nature of God with the temporal nature of our circumstances. The eternal nature of God versus the temporal nature of what opposes us. And Paul makes this very point. He says, in the middle of difficulty, lift your eyes off the difficulty and lift your eyes to something, to someone that is eternal. And, and we're, we're playing the long game here, like eternal. That changes, and that gives us faith for the difficulty that we are in now when we think eternally. To think eternally doesn't remove us from a circumstance. It empowers us to walk through a circumstance when we think about the eternality of God, the everlasting nature of God. So this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Listen, lifting our eyes on the eternal one is not an escape, sort of like a denial of our challenges. It's not not to lift us sort of out of the world so that we're not active in the world to solve problems. It's not saying that we deny we have problems because we just look to the future. No, that, Habakkuk's got a huge problem. His nation's got a big problem. But when he hears of that, he, he looks to the everlasting God and says, well, there's something, there's something that far outlives the Chaldeans and the Chaldean invasion. There's someone that's far greater than all of that. And his perplexing situation, as we go through, we're going to see it will end He's saying, God, you are eternal, and you are working for our eternal good. Lord, you are going to work for the eternal good of your people. You are eternal. So I'm going to lift my eyes off the coming invasion, and I'm going to lift my eyes to you and say that you are everlasting. Is that in your grid when you think about 
what faces you today. Again, some of us are in a great season of life, and uh, some of us are in the worst season of our lives. So it varies in the room. The room's not equal. Uh, We all have different situations. But if you are, everybody's having some challenge, but if you're having profound challenges, I want to ask you, where are your eyes fixed? It's not escapist that Habakkuk hears challenging news and then goes theological. It's running to help, running to the source of help and saying, Lord, you live forever. I want to root my heart in the fact that you have no beginning and no end, that you are over all history, that you have created history. So I'm going to entrust myself to the everlasting one. Are your eyes filled with a vision of an uncertain future, or are your eyes filled with the certainty of the everlasting God? He goes on from there and he says, "You are you not everlasting, O Lord, my God." Now, the Lord, if you look at it in your Bible or on your device, the Lord is all caps. It's L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So in the English Bible, when you read Lord and it's all caps, that means they are the 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 uh, the Bible Translation Committee, is trans, they have translated, they've made a choice to translate the name of God in all caps. It's the, it's the name Yahweh, Yahweh. And it's the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. So in Exodus, I think it's chapter 3 or early Exodus, whatever chapter it is, uh, God appears to Moses and says, you know, go, go, go. Uh, basically go free my people. And Moses says, well, when I go to Egypt, to Pharaoh, to free your people, and they say, God has sent me, who do I say God is? So what's your name? What's your name? And he says, tell them I am has sent you. That, that, that word I am, or I am that I am, or I am being, we could, all of those would be fair kind of renderings. I am, I am who I am, I am existing, I am existence, I am being, Tell them I am has sent you. That is Yahweh. That is Lord. So when it says, are you not from everlasting? Oh, I am my God. Or I am that I am my God. That's what that means. And when, when he gives the name to Moses, I am, what he's saying is, I am pure existence. I am self-existent. So go tell them, I'm not a God made with hands. You can't have an idol that, you can't carve an idol that represents me. So when they ask who sent you, you just tell them the the existent one, the one who is self-existent sent me. Like, wow, that's a lot to, that's a lot to, to take in. Tell them that I am pure existence. What this means is that God exists in and of himself. Why is that important? Well, it's important. And what does that have to do with an invading army? Well, here's why it's important. Here's why theology matters. Uh, There's why 30,000-foot theology matters at ground level in daily life when when life doesn't make sense. Because it means that God exists in and of himself, and by definition, all of creation exists dependent on God. God is the only independent being in the universe. Every other being or every other, everything else, inanimate or animate, is contingent. That means it is dependent upon God. God is independent. Everything else is dependent. God exists in and of himself. Everyone else exists only because of God. 
and as long as God allows them to exist. So that's why this idea of his name, Yahweh, I am that I am, this is why when, when they call out his name, when they worship in the Old Testament, we see praise to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that there, there is a reference to the one who is independent. So what Habakkuk is saying, God, I don't understand these circumstances. I don't understand how you could be raising up a fierce army of people who hate you to discipline your people. But I do know that you are existent in and of yourselves, you of yourself, you are infinitely greater than they are. It says in verse 11, their strength is their God, yet because you are the self-existent one, their strength is their God, but they depend on you for every breath. They, they are their own God, but they can't even draw a breath into their lungs without you because only you are independent. Only you exist in and of yourself. Everyone else is dependent on you. So that tips the scales. That means it's not like our God is a little better than your God. Our God beat your God. Our God took you in four out of seven. Uh, our, our, our God is a hundred times better than you, or our God is a million times stronger than your God. No, this is our God is in a completely different category. There is the self-existent one who has always been that exists in and of himself, and there's all creation. And the Chaldeans fall under all creation dependent on that God. So what Habakkuk is doing is he's reminding himself, what am I certain about? I'm certain that my God, that's what he says, Oh, Yahweh, my God, I am my God. This self-existent one, that's who I'm identifying with. That's my God. He's put me on his team. I'm with him. He's, he, he is highlighting that the self-existent one, everyone else exists because of God, and the Chaldeans only exist in power because it says previously in the chapter that God has raised them up. Verse 5, for behold, I'm sorry, verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The only reason they exist is because you have raised them up. Now, this is tremendously encouraging when you feel like your future, when you feel like your well-being when, when you feel like uh, any given circumstance, any given circumstance in your life, your future, your well-being, that you are dependent on someone else. You're absolutely not dependent on anyone else. No one holds your future. Your boss does not control your future. Your neighbor does not control your future. This government of this country or any government of any country does not control the future of God's people. Everyone is dependent on God. The, the one who opposes you is dependent on God. The, the one who opposes you only exists because God allows him or her to exist. We are all dependent upon God. And so it is a great comfort to say, I'm trusting you. I am my God, the self-existent one, my God. I'm looking to you and acknowledging that you exist in and of yourselves, and we are all dependent on you. So my future is dependent on what you choose to do as the self-existent one, and that is true of all of us. We are dependent. He is independent. Next, he says, holy are you from everlasting. So your eternal God, you're holy, my holy one. Holy means that God is separate from his creation. At one level, it means he's separated. 
He's separate from the creation. It also means that he is righteous. Everything he does is pure and good. Everything he does is completely opposed to all evil and all unrighteousness. And so that's really important that he reminds himself that my God is holy, my holy one, which means our God, the God of our, uh, uh, your people, our God uh, can only do what's righteous, can only do what is good, is completely opposed to all unrighteousness because Habakkuk is wrestling with the question, is it right for the wicked Chaldeans to attack God's people? How could God do that? Is that a righteous act to take this evil people and attack God's people? So he reminds himself God cannot do anything that is unrighteous. So these, again, this, is, this isn't just religious language. I just need to say, God, you're holy. That's a good word. Okay, holy. No, he's saying, you're righteous. All of your actions are right. Therefore, I trust that whatever's going to happen to us, however you're going to act towards your people, has to be in line with your character, which is righteous. In chaos, he orients himself to the character of God, not to his circumstances. God can only act towards his people in a righteous way. He can't do anything that is wrong because he's holy. Next he says God is sovereign. O Lord, there's Yahweh again, O O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. That means you've appointed the Chaldeans as a judgment. Uh, O Lord, you have established them for reproof. Reproof is correction. So how did they get their power? You appointed them. How are they, this powerful army that's on their way to attack? You establish them. What's he saying? God, you rule over all. You are sovereign. Uh, This is a result of your plan, your will, your desire, and no one can stop you. No one thwarts your plans, O God. Psalm 115 says, our God is in in heaven. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him, which means he rules over all. Uh, This is one of the greatest comforts in uncertain circumstances. When we face trial, when we face difficulty, when we face grief, when we face perplexity, when life does not make sense, remind ourselves of what we know to be certain about God. This is one of the most comforting circumstances that God rules and reigns over the world, over our nation, over our city, over our church, over our family, over our lives. Habakkuk reminds himself that God rules and has appointed this, and not only to appoint, but he says it's a reproof. He's not just being fatalistic here. God's sovereignty isn't the doctrine of fatalism. It is something that brings him comfort because he knows God will act in a redemptive way. We are in covenant. God has made a covenant with his people. So the sovereign God will act for our good, for redemptive, in a redemptive way. The judgment and the reproof are purifying. God will end up with a remnant of his people that are uh, displaying his glory in the earth. That's, what he's, that's what's going to happen here with Habakkuk's, uh, with, with, the, with the reproof that's coming to Judah. And lastly, God is faithful. He doesn't use the word faithful, but he uses this picture, this picture word, O rock, in verse 12. You are the rock. You have established us for reproof. What does this mean? Don't, when you hear rock, don't think uh, like pebble or rock that you could hold in your hand. That's not what it means. Rock is a picture uh, of something stable, even taken up by Bob Seger and Chevy truck commercials, like a rock. It means stable, trustworthy, 
And I'm saying by our truck, it's, it's, like this, it's like this little stone. Now they're saying this is stable, trustworthy. You can lean and depend because our brand is like a rock. That's a similar idea to here. He's saying that our God is a rock. He is a firm place to stand. Not only is he eternal, not only is he self-existent, not only is he holy, not only is he sovereign, but he is solid and faithful. That's why he says in verse 12, we shall not die. God has made a covenant with his people. He made a covenant with Abraham. He's been faithful to his people throughout the ages. And he promises that one day he will bless all the nations through his people. Through Israel, the Savior Jesus will come. And so he is trustworthy. That rock is a position of stability, faithfulness. The rock is always there, trustworthy. He will keep his covenant promises. God will bring judgment, but it will be good for his people. It will purify them and prepare them to receive the Savior, Jesus Christ, who will come through them. He is a secure place to stand. He will fulfill his promises. So when you say, you are, we sing that song, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, you are the firm foundation. You are the one on which I stand, building my life on you, building my life in your word. The circumstances are crazy. I don't understand this. This seems wrong. I've got questions. How can this be? But I'm standing on the rock. What does Habakkuk do? He reminds himself what he is certain about. Life is crazy. How can this be? Let's retrace our steps. Let's get back. When were we last oriented? When we were thinking about God. So let's go back there, get reoriented, and then we can navigate the disorientation that is all around us. When we stop and remember what we know to be true about God, we find a solid place to stand, even when life doesn't make sense. Have you ever tried to like cross a uh, maybe a narrow creek with some running water and uh, and you think how can we get across maybe it's too deep to just walk across uh, maybe there's a current maybe the water's cold and you don't want to get in it whatever but have you ever done the deal where you just kind of like you see there's a pathway in front of you and so you sort of like step out you know and you're kind of like that and rock and then you step out on the next I'm not going to do that step off the platform but you you kind of go from rock and then you kind of leap and jump to the next there's rocks jutting up out of the water so that you can make it across the creek that's kind of what Habakkuk is doing here he's got all these rocks he's got the rock that's the big term but he's got all these things that he's reaching out there's so there's a current of chaos flowing how am I going to navigate the current of chaos in front of me. Well, I'm going to step. Here's what I know for sure. I can step on this rock. God is eternal. God is eternal. I know that. I can step on this rock. God is self-existent. I know that. So as long as I'm standing on his eternal nature, as long as I'm standing on his self-existence, as long as I'm standing on his holiness, as long as I, these are the things I know for a fact, I can, I can navigate the chaos of the stream. I can get across. How? By getting a foothold on the character of God. What is, what is your foothold? Is your foothold to hold yourself up your money, your finances, your job, your health? All that can go. All that can go. Your friendships, I hope they stick with you till the end, but that's not always the case. They can go. Our country it can go. Countries have come and gone, and we dare not think we're any different. That somehow, it's, it's, you know, uh, we could go. I don't know. I pray not, but we could. 
What, what is it that you're saying? The only place to stand is on the rock of God's character, and that's what Habakkuk demonstrates here. You want to keep from falling in the chaos and being overwhelmed by the uncertainty and being carried down the stream of panic and doubt and, you know, uh, extreme despair, then you've got to stay above it in a sense, standing on the rock of the character of God. You may not know about the uncertain current, but what do you know certainly about God? So what is the chaos that you are facing? What's the uncertainty that you are facing that's in front of you? Stop and think. You might need to write down, what truths do I know about God? What scripture do I know about? This verse right here is a great one. What verses do I know about God? This is why it's so helpful to read regularly the Psalms. Whatever kind of devotional plan you're in, I'd I'd recommend reading at least some of the Psalms daily because they just pound us with the character of God, the truth of God, what God is like. Fill our mind with him. What is, what is it that you are facing? Go back and say, what do you know for certain, and how can you stand on that truth? Now, here's what happens. Even after reminding himself of God's character, Habakkuk is still unclear about God's method. I still don't get what you're doing here, Lord. So he asks, there's a little bit of a further comment about it. So when life doesn't make sense, remember what you know to be certain about God. But then here's the second idea, and this is very brief and we're done. When life doesn't make sense, leave the uncertainty with God. So just because you know God's character doesn't mean that you grasp and understand all of his ways or all that's happening. You don't have to. That's the good news. Habakkuk still has a question. Leave the uncertainty with God about how God could use the Chaldeans given his character. This doesn't answer all the questions. Verse 13, you're of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Lord, you can't even look at wrong. So why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So we may not be any, you know, we may not win the holiness of the universe award right now as your people, but we're better than the Chaldeans. So how can you use people that are more unrighteous and wicked to judge and to attack your people? How can you do that? Why does the wicked swallow us up? And then this is what he does in verse 14. He compares humankind to fish. And really in view here is here's, here's Judah, here we are, and then the fisherman is, uh, is the Chaldeans. So look at the story. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, this is the fisherman, uh, it's ultimately referring, I, I believe, to uh, the Chaldeans, the footnote in, in um, And the ESV says the wicked foe. So the wicked foe brings them all up with a hook. Chaldeans are coming to the hook. They're just going to pull us up with a hook. They're going to gather us with a dragnet. They're going to rejoice. They're going to tear down your temple, God. He may not know all this, but that's what's coming. They're going to tear down your temple. They're going to tear down our city walls. They're going to be glad, verse 16. Therefore, this fisherman, this foe, he's going to sacrifice to his net. He is going to make offerings to his dragnet. That is, he is going to worship his military strength, boast in his military power. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep emptying his net and mercifully killing nations forever? Are you going to let this guy go along unchecked, this fisherman? Are the Chaldeans going to continue to attack? Are they going to boast in themselves, worship themselves? And are you going to allow that to happen? How can they keep going like this? 
God, how are you going to allow evil men who worship themselves to catch us and and put us in their dragnet? Well, we'll see how God answers that next week, cliffhanger. But for now, let's look what Habakkuk does with his concerns. When life doesn't make sense, he remembers what is certain about God, and then he leaves the uncertainty with God. So he does all the celebrating the character of God, and he says, okay, but methodologically, I still don't get this one thing. And then verse 1 of chapter 2, I will take my stand on the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Okay, so Lord, after all that, I'm going to shut up, I'm going to get my tower, and I'm just going to watch and wait. I've, I've, I'm going to review what's true of you, and I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait and watch, watch and wait, listen to you. He's confident that God will respond. I'm going to look out and see what you're going to say. So when we are at an impasse, we don't know what to do, there's a time to just say, I know who you are, Lord. I'm reviewing who you are. I'm seeking to live in the good of who you are. I'm feeding my soul and my mind on your character and not my solutions to the problem. This is where I'm living. I still don't get some things, but I'm just going to leave the uncertain with you and just wait and watch. Most of us don't do wait and watch real well. We do activity and fix it and solve it. I got to, you know, we're doers. But here, review the character of God, write it down, think about it, read it in the word, meditate on it, remind ourselves, cross over the chaos on the rock of his character, stand on him, all of these things, and then I can't explain it all. I'm not God. Uh, He's not going to satisfy all my curiosity necessarily, but he's given me a solid place to stand, to stand and wait. And we wait because at times God's actions are perplexing. If you read through the whole story of the Bible, what you'll find, though, is that the most perplexing action of God, ultimately, in the Bible, is the coming of Jesus Christ. If if Habakkuk is asking, how can you accomplish good for your people by using evil people, the ultimate test case of that is Jesus. Jesus is God, and he uses, God uses evil people to crucify his own son, to kill his own son. He could have done away with evil people. He could have fought back. He could have judged all of them. <clears throat> There's passages in the Bible where the earth opens up and sucks people down into it. He could have done that with everyone that opposed Jesus, but he did not do that. He allowed evil people to oppose him. God took the abuse and the scorn and the hatred and the judgment and the violence of evil people against himself. He did it himself in the person of Jesus, who is holy God and holy man. This is what he does in the death of Jesus. Jesus absorbs our sins upon himself, takes our sins, and thus absorbs judgment upon himself at the hands of evil people who think they're defeating a false prophet, uh, who are opposing him, but he accepts that, he receives that. Why? For the ultimate good of his people. Jesus endures suffering. Jesus opposes, talk about perplexing, God himself, the pure and holy one, receiving 
violent uh, anger and hatred against himself. How could this be? The creator of the universe subjecting himself to abuse and, and being harmed by people, crucified, hated, spat upon, mocked. The God of the universe took all of that so that you and I could be restored to him. This is the most perplexing. The most perplexing thing is not why does a sinner ever suffer. The most perplexing thing is why would the righteous God himself suffer for us? That's perplexing. And that is a rock to stand on. If God himself would come and suffer in my place, will he not see me through this situation? Is my God not good? Is my God not faithful? When I could never rescue myself, he came and rescued me. It is the good news, it is the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus that is the ultimate rock to stand upon. When life is confusing and uncertain and we have our doubts about God, which we all do if we're honest, at points we all have our doubts. Does God really love me? Is God really present with me? Is God really faithful to me? All of those questions are answered on a hill when the Son of God is dying on a cross in our place. That answers the question. When he is buried and when he is raised on the third day, that answers the question. Is God good? Is God faithful? Is God loving? Will God see us through? Look at the risen Savior and find the answer. And this is a place for us to stand Because of the resurrected Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit indwelling you, because you are united to Christ, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Does that answer every possible question we could have? Well, no. The Bible proves that. There's questions. I don't get this. I don't get that. But it gives us more than enough to live with clarity in the midst of chaos. It gives us all that we need. God has given us all that we need to be sustained with clarity in the midst of chaos, with confidence in the midst of uncertainty. So when life doesn't make sense, retrace your steps back to the Bible, back to the cross and resurrection, back to the character of God, retrace back to where you were oriented, and get reoriented and travel forward, stepping step by step on the rock that is God. How can you remember Here's a couple things as we leave. How can you remember what you know to be true of God? It may involve journaling. It may involve writing. I said to, be li- to listen, but it may involve actually speaking those truths to someone else with someone else. It may involve m- memorizing scripture that tells you what God is like even when your circumstances don't appear that way. Uh, it may, may, whatever your temptation is, God's not with me, God's forgotten me, God's not good, whatever it is, it may be memorizing scripture that communicates the opposite, the, the truth that he is with you. Um, so it is that, it is reminding ourselves, and then it is what we're still not certain about, it's leaving that with God. It's watching and waiting. Saying, God, I don't know if I'll ever get an answer this, this side of your return, so I'll just wait for your return. That's what I have to wait for. But I'm just gonna wait, and I'm gonna calm my spirit and my heart in you. He may not satisfy all your curiosity, but he gives you more than you need to remember that he is worth your trust. And that's what Habakkuk does. He reviews what he knows to be true about God. When life is uncertain, he, he puts all his weight on what is certain. God Almighty.
You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.